Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic. Found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Identical twins, Keith and Kenny Lucas, were born and raised in Newark, New Jersey, separating only to attend different law schools at Duke and NYU. They reunited, though, after both quit the law to pursue a comedy career together, and with a stoner persona that eventually got them a Netflix special in 2017, The Lucas Bros on Drugs. They've also enjoyed writing and performing with the sketch group Friends of the People on True TV and their animated series Lucas Bros Moving Company on Fox, as well as appearing in roles on 22 Jump Street, The Grinder, and Lady Dynamite. In 2021, you're getting to see a more serious side from Keith and Kenneth, as they've completed a 10-year journey to bring the story of Chicago Black Panther leader Fred Hampton to the big screen in the film Judas and the Black Messiah. The brothers joined me over Zoom to talk about working with their friends, how the death of Kevin Barnett impacted them, and what it means to not just be an armchair revolutionary. So let's get to it! So, uh, Kenneth and Keith, the Lucas Brothers, uh, first off, congratulations, Judas and the Black Messiah is, I would call it an agonizingly great movie. Um, That seems right. (laughs) That seems right. (laughs) Because it's great, but it's also, like, infuriating and frustrating to be reminded of, like, how much the FBI and powerful interests get in the way of progress. Oh, yeah. It's, it's a long history, man. It's a long history. Yeah. Um, since my, my podcast is called Last Things First, I want to start with, uh, this is not a spoiler, but one of the last things in the movie uh, is Bill O'Neill talking about the fact that at least he wasn't an armchair revolutionary. And that strikes me, like it hits so much harder now that we have social media than it did 20, 30, 40 years ago. Right, right, right. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of armchair revolutionaries now. It seems as if everybody has an opinion about everything. And, you know, you know, some people like to proclaim that they're radical and they're fighting against the system. And I think some people truly believe it. Uh, but it's hard to tell, man. But back then, you know, they were, they were literally putting their lives on the line. And there are some, you know, some folks in the, in the BLM uh, circle that they, they've... Uh, They've been targeted by the police. Some have been killed. So, you know, it's still dangerous times for sure. But right. I think you have way more folks who, who, who are revolutionary online, but don't really put it into practice. Without a doubt. The, you know, I know I've, I've read that you guys first learned about Fred Hampton while you guys were uh, in, in college. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering the, the fact that those guys were both Fred and Bill were, were, were just teenagers themselves. The idea that you were their age when you learned about him, how much, how much did that have an even greater impact on, on your own lives? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was crazy because, you know, I was in college, I was, we were part of the student union and we, were, we had aspirations of being lawyers. So when I'm reading about this young guy who had all of these sort of, you know, dreams and he was committed as an activist and he wanted to uplift his community. But then I find out he dies this way. It's like, you can't help but like reflect on that as a young black man at the time. Like I was like, how crazy, like 
I, I couldn't see anything in his rhetoric or I couldn't see anything in his activity to justify being executed like that. And so, yeah, I, I always thought about it heavily. Yeah, same. You know, when you hear about Hampton and, you know, we were, we were incredibly young at the time and he was incredibly young and he had done so much at such a young age. You know, you're, you're almost in awe. You're like, I'm, I'm the same age as this guy, but I'm not as committed to uh, my principles like he is. And, you know, I understand why the state uh, was afraid of him. Uh, but nevertheless, that doesn't justify assassination, certainly execution at your home. Uh, but he was such a, a powerful speaker. And I think I just I was just watching this video about, uh, with Bobby Rush. He said he was a genius organizer. And I'm like, yeah, he was. He was a genius organizer powerful order and, and he was able to accomplish so much at such a young age i mean yeah just couldn't help but being being all yeah the idea that that he was killed when he was only still only 21 a kid right but he was looked at as this massive threat by j edgar hoover and and the white power structure it's right. like i think about what i was doing at 21 i was not a threat to anybody <laughs> <laughs> me either. <laughs> I, I couldn't imagine like the state coming after me at the age of 21. I'm like, we're doing what? Like saying yeah. some shit. Like I, I, I said a lot of shit when I was 21. You know, I didn't, I don't know. I just, it, it well, just seems we, like we, we also have situation. To, we have to remember that Jagger Hoover was a madman. Right. <laughs> he had a, he had a militant racist fear of African-Americans and that, played a role in how he shaped his, uh, how he shaped the FBI and how he shaped policy toward uh, targeting uh, African-Americans. And obviously it wasn't just African-Americans, pretty much anyone on the left, but right. Hoover was a madman. And for some odd reason, America has a tendency to reward uh, psychopaths. It's like <laughs> that's a long history of rewarding psychopaths. It's like he, but American... he, never got ele- he never got elected. He just... I said rewarding. I just said rewarding. Yeah, I didn't yeah, say yeah. voting in, just rewarding psychopaths. <laughs> I, I guess I should mention for our listeners that as we talk, uh, we just found out uh, a couple hours ago that Rush Limbaugh died. So, oh, talk, about, so talk about rewarding hate and. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't like to disrespect the dead. I'm not going to go course, that route, but I'm just like, you know, I don't think he was great for America. I mean, I mean, no. I know there's another part of the country that really believes he was great for it, but there's another half that's just like, Ugh, he was, but we're he was... but we're not here to talk about Rush. We're here to talk right. about about you guys. <laughs> right. So let me quickly get it back on track. That's uh, a good pivot. <laughs> the, uh, the the moment when you guys decided separately yet together to drop out of law school was that like a was there a direct epiphany that that made that happen, or was that a gradual disinterest in in full? Kenny? I would I would say I would say it was sort of a I mean I, I arrived at it a, a little sooner but I think we've both been having sort of reservations about pursuing a legal career as a as a long term uh, strategy for amassing wealth I think uh, <laughs> I, I I think we both sort of realized that we 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 had larger ambitions we had uh, we both had like a creative impulse that we had to you know, so we had, that we had to examine. And I, I think we kind of arrived at that, that sort of feeling simultaneous. Yeah. I, I, I mean, when he first presented the idea, I thought he was losing his mind. It didn't, it didn't right. make any sense to me. I was like, this dude's crazy. Like I was very committed to becoming a lawyer and 
uh, I was definitely more convinced than he was. I, w- I was probably more of a capitalist. And uh, yeah, I really wanted it. But I, he did a good job of convincing me that it wasn't the right way to go. Uh, there's this, there's more you can do with your voice, I think, as a comedian. And, you know, there are positions that I have that I think uh, I wanted to explore as well. So, you know, doing it through comedy was just uh, seemed like the right way to go. So, so Kenny made a strong prosecute prosecutorial argument yeah. then oh yeah right. oh yeah, right. yeah he laid right. out he laid out all the facts he laid out all the evidence and he convinced me he convinced me I, I, was I, was, saying, I was saying i was saying my my legal education coupled with my background in philosophy put me in a position to convince him why he should make the why yeah, he i was, should I was make highly the, skeptical i was highly skeptical <laughs> know, deeply it's, deeply it took deeply me a, a couple of weeks to just wrap my head around it but uh ultimately it was the right choice the jury came back with a unanimous opinion. <laughs> <laughs> Verdict. Was it a direct path then from from law to comedy, or were there some detours? Well, when we first, like, so when we were first thinking about dropping out, I know Kenny was doing a little bit of stand up. I mean, not like a ton, but no. he was getting up every now and then. And you know, I I gotten up maybe once in Durham, and we were doing it sort of, you know, lazily. And uh, right. when I got back to Jersey after you know, leaving Duke, I was um, we were like, oh, maybe we should do screenwriting instead. Maybe that's more up our alley because, you know, we, we, we've always been kind of introverted and not really the best public speaker. So stand up right. to me, it was just tough to like, it was hard for me to wrap my brain that on how to, what do you do? Because I'm like, my favorite stand up comedians are people like Chappelle and Eddie Murphy. And these guys seem just like supernaturally gifted at comedy. And I had never seen myself like that I always saw myself as a bit more analytical so um not to say that they're not analytical but more introverted and um so we 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 were thinking about doing screenwriting instead we bought this we went to Barnes and Noble bought this screenwriting book and we we had it and it was like the principles of screenwriting and we read it and we were like "Uh, this seems a little bit more nebulous than the stand-up path so we we went back to stand-up but we never like com- we never completely gave up our dreams of being screenwriters. But we just thought like stand up, ma- stand up made a little bit more sense. Yeah, but as we're doing stand up, we we had we had to find like a bunch of odd jobs. You know mm-hmm. the story. So we got we had to work for like a cable company. We worked for a hospital. We worked mm-hmm. for uh, what else did we work for? We worked for we just we had, we had unemployment. Right, but we got fired from all those jobs. Like every single <laughs> job that we yeah. worked post law school, we got fired from for whatever reason. Yeah, what was the only nice. job we've never been fired from? Stand up, yeah. yeah. What was yeah. what was the last day job you guys had? We were working at this hospital. Uh, our mom got us a job. Like you know, she had to like talk to someone to get us this job. It's basically like clerical work, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, we would we asked them to sort of stagger our our uh schedule so that we can still do stand-up but because we didn't know we asked them if we could do it at the same time so that we can do we were like we're like look look we know you guys have patients some of them die every once in a while but <laughs> we're gonna really need to schedule uh, in a way that allows for us to do free shows in new york city right right, right. Uh, and yeah i know you guys are paying us but don't worry about that we're gonna be we're gonna be big time at some point. <laughs> we promise. <laughs> we don't plan on being here too long. So could you just please just work with us? So we like we were asking them to keep us together, but they would always stagger our hours. So we we weren't able to do stand up. So this one time they had they had put Kenny on for like two. Uh, how, what, how many did they put you on for? 
two hours or two more hours, hours than you should have done so I, I i was like i'll come in for you for a couple hours right go back so we just like we can just switch hours and someone fucking snitched on us and uh and then we got fired oh. and that's what motivated us to uh write judas and a black messiah <laughs> <laughs> we got snitched on by some old white lady and we were like we gotta we gotta make a story about this <laughs> you know I, I i know you guys have been have been you know, thinking about this 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 project for a lot longer than than most people realize. I'm wondering, like, when you saw a, a comedian like John Ridley win an Academy Award for Twelve Years a Slave, like, how much did that like influence or inspire you to go, oh yeah, like, even though we're comedians at heart, we can do something serious and we can get legitimate attention. Oh yeah, I and mean, John Ridley was he has been a huge influence just in right. terms of how he structured his career. I mean, he left stand up completely. And I don't think I would ever do that, but uh, I, I do like how he was able to carve out uh, a great career as a writer. And that just signaled to me, like, as a stand-up, that there are a lot of things we can do. I mean, I think right. that stand-ups are some of, the, some of the brightest people in the industry, uh, just right. in terms of our ability to write and our ability to analyze, our ability to stand on stage and deliver a joke. I mean, it's, it's, it's tough, so... You know, I think when I when we saw Ridley doing it and he won the Oscar and, you know, he's just carved out a great career as a writer. I think that that certainly had an influence on us. Also, like Tom McCarthy, he right. kind of did a little bit of stand up. Um, obviously, Jordan Peele. Uh, you have a couple of people who are just like prominent comedians who were able to make that transition. Right. Because, you know, you're you're making pitches to studios and, you know, they might see you as only like. Oh, these two stoner stand-ups who do a, a brother act. Right. And or, it wouldn't be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> or, or they're like, oh, yeah, we watched your Netflix special. Or, you know, you guys do, you know, you had the late night animation blog. Mm-hmm. Box. Mm-hmm. So it's like, how do you get them to see you in a different light? Yeah, I think you got to start like when you go to a pitch, you just start by quoting Malcolm X. Like you got to go in <laughs> straight militant. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, like. Yeah, I, I get it. Like you, if you've seen our work, your first thought isn't going to be like a, a, a biopic about, or not, not even a biopic, but a, a historical thriller about COINTELPRO that involves, that, that a central plot point involves the assassination of a person. I mean, you're not going to think that. So you have to get through to, you have, you have to sort of figure out a way to comb through that institutional bias and, and you know, put the pieces together and 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 work with people who who can get you over the hump. I mean, right. I think I think uh, yeah, linking up with filmmakers who had a better understanding of how to get these things done. I think that that was crucial. I mean, you know, you have to. I think in this industry, you know, especially if you want to do anything, you know, you have to you have to know how to collaborate. And I think you know when we first went out, we went out with just me and my brother. We, you know, we didn't really understand the. The nuances of you know pitching and, and selling the pitch or anything like that so we obviously we were struggling and I think uh yeah being able to link up with someone like Shaka who was able to link up with someone like Kugler who was able to link up with someone like Charles King is like it's like it's almost like you have to collaborate because you never know how doors are going to be unlocked and I think mm-hmm. that that was uh crucial to getting this project made just you know right. opening up our 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 arms essentially and like reaching out to people and and not having an ego about the process. You know what I mean? Just making sure we see it through. And and now now we're here. One of the things watching Judas and the Black Messiah, and I, 
I hope this doesn't come across as a spoiler to anybody who hasn't yet seen it. But I was so delighted and pleased to see Lil Rel and Jermaine <laughs> not only both have parts in it, but like they're just both great in their in their right. in the scenes that they're in. They're just <laughs> they're just fabulous right. in it. Right. They're 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 amazing actors. I mean, we got to watch them for two years straight, just doing these weird, silly sketches. And we knew then and there that like they had next level talent and, and obviously Rel proved it would get out. And Jermaine's been proving it with sorry to bother, sorry to bother you. And he's going to prove it and coming to America. They're just, they're just exceptionally gifted actors. Right. Yeah. For, for those of you who, who don't know uh, the Lucas brothers, Jermaine Fowler, Lil Rel Howery uh, were all part of a sketch group that was on true TV called friends of the people mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, baby. with the great Kevin, <laughs> late great Kevin Barnett. Yeah. Right. Uh, he was a co-head writer with Josh Rabinowitz and we had Jim Bar- Bartels as well. It was, it was a crazy sketch show. Crazy sketch. Right. Show. So did, did, did those, did those guys audition separately or, or it's actually you- kind of crazy. Uh, so Jermaine, uh, you know, Jermaine was crucial in terms of the development of the, of the of the you know story getting made he knew will burson who's the uh, other screenwriter on the, on the on the script and he also knew he obviously knew us but he knew shaka as well and right. he knew we were each we were all working on separate projects so he made the connection between us and burson and that right, was right. again that was another crucial step that needed to happen to get this film made because burson had his own script already written it was about fred hampton it was brilliant it was great and when we read his script, we were like, oh, man, we should just synthesize the two projects. You know what I mean? Right. right, right. right in a, you know, it's just, you know, it's trying to get a Fred Hampton movie made is it's nearly impossible. So you need to make sure you, you, you know, you you, you present the best possible uh, script and uh, Burson just put us over the edge. So Jermaine sort of he was responsible for that. And uh, right, right. so, uh, yeah, so I think Shaka auditioned. He auditioned uh, Jermaine. I think he auditioned Rel as well. So they auditioned for it. But I think you know, we kind of owe Jermaine really because without <laughs> Jermaine, this project wouldn't wouldn't be where it is. So, right. but Rel, I think he wanted to be in the movie because you know he's from Chicago. He's right. he might be the most authentically Chicago dude <laughs> in the film. Right. Uh, he wanted to be on it, so he he called up he called up Cougar and Cougar <laughs> made it happen. <laughs> yeah, I don't even know if, if Rel is is a real person. In, in, no, the, I in mean, the story, but yeah, but but, but his 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 role is fantastic. You know, he's obviously he's a diabolical character, and it, his 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 decision or his 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 poison leads to you know the death of Fred. But you know, Rel as a FBI pimp is just you know, <laughs> if you don't know anything else about Jews and the Black Messiah, and you were to hear like, oh, Rel playing an FBI pimp in this movie. You're like, oh man, that's kind of hilarious. <laughs> yeah, it does. It does bring some much-needed comedy to the. <laughs> but that's the thing. That's why I think it's so brilliant about the casting. It's like you see Lil Rel, and you're like, all right, he's gonna at least be funny. We've we've gone through all of this fucking, all this all of this trauma throughout this film, and now we have this one person who can just make us laugh. And then he, there's a twist to it. I think right, that was right. just yeah. a brilliant call by uh by Shaka. Do you uh, did you did I blink and miss it or? Was Josh not a uh, corrupt FBI agent? <laughs> well, we, we actually we wanted Josh to play Fred Hampton, but everyone was so big on Kaluuya. I was like, all right, whatever. 
Yeah, well, yeah. The Warner Bros. They didn't. They weren't really. They didn't think that a a white Jewish guy would have you know would have done a great job as Fred Hampton. So I I, I understand their logic. <laughs> I mean, Josh is small in stature, but now I want to. I, now I want to see and hear him do. A, the I'm a revolutionary. <laughs> man, we were on set when fucking Kaluuya did that speech, man. Oh, my God. It was, it, I mean, obviously when people watch it on screen, they get like, they get chills. But imagine right. being there among right. all those people watching this guy just deliver a fiery speech as for Hampton. I mean, it was, it was exhilarating, man. Like, it's like I, I'd never seen that level of acting before where someone was just right. fully emerged into the character. It was just it, Brilliant, brilliant performance. Yeah, I would have followed Kaluuya into into battle. Absolutely, absolutely, (laughs) absolutely. I I would do anything for Kaluuya just off that speech alone. (laughs) And of course, you know, you mentioned uh, the late great Kevin Barnett. Um, Yeah, would you have imagined a role for him in this? (laughs) Was crazy. Was that thing that uh, Rami just sent us? (laughs) (laughs) Rami sent us. uh, uh, He sent us a voice message. He's like. uh, us lying to Kevin saying that he got cast as Fred Hampton and uh, <laughs> saying, saying he beat Daniel Kaluuya. <laughs> like yeah, we, no, just we just keep, like, <laughs> keep pushing it. It's like, you know, you, it's, it's really close between you and Kaluuya, man. It's like <laughs> neck and neck. <laughs> that would well, be funny. But no, yeah. I don't, I mean, yeah, fucking Kevin, man. Yeah, I think he could have he could have done something, man. He had the perfect hair for for late sixties. <laughs> he had rights. he had nineteen sixties civil rights hair, so he would have been <laughs> he would have been perfect. Well, you know, Ram, Rami Rami Youssef, you know, Golden Globe winning Rami Youssef. Yes, yes. He did manage to get uh, Kev into one of his episodes. He oh, did. yeah, that's true. That's true. With, that was with Mia Khalifa, even. Yeah, that yeah. was brilliant. Yeah. He showed us that. Brilliant. I was like, I almost came to tears. I'm like, this is this is exactly what Kevin wants to be right now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, I'll ask because you, you did write about this so sincerely and brilliantly for an essay in Vulture, uh, New York Magazine, in June of 2020. You talked about, like, mental health and PTSD and substance abuse issues. Mm-hmm. How did How did Kevin's death affect you guys heavy man it was uh heavy like the first like when we first found out i was fucked up man i was still drinking at the time so i was i went hard like i had like a bender i was i i I was in this i was in a daze like just everything felt dark man like it was one one of the darkest periods of my life uh and i'm still like working through it like it's it, I, it's going to be like one of those things where whenever I get close to Kevin's uh, day of his death, I, I get like kind of antsy and sort of uncomfortable. But uh, yeah, it it, it 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 impacted me pretty hardcore. But I think sure. it also motivated me to give up booze. Like I, I was like, I I don't want to do that anymore. So uh, it was it was it was a gift and a curse. Obviously, more curse than a gift. But yeah. Yeah, I was, yeah, still fucked up, still fucked up by it. But you know, obviously, when it first happened, it was just you're just like it's, it's like one of those things that you just can't truly believe. You know, it was like I was in a daze and I was shocked. I was just like, I can't believe. I, it's just you, you hear those words and you're just like, no way, that's true. He's mm-hmm. he's doing a prank. because we've just seen him. We just right. seen him a week ago. We were it was me, Kenny, Lana Glazer. Josh and we went to this Thai restaurant 
on uh, on Sunset, and we were just, you know, it was like old times, and and when we were in New York waiting to do an open mic, and it was just like, you know, we were just reminiscing about the the good old days, and fucking Matthew Weiner from Mad Men stopped by, and like <laughs> it was just, it was such a surreal night, and I didn't think that right. that would be my last night with him. It was just like we were just having a good time and laughing, and like right. we always do, and. And if I had known it was going to be out last night, obviously I would have, I would have certainly stayed out a little longer, but it was just like, it's one of those things where you, you just don't expect that to be the last night. You just, and then, right. then in, the, in the instant it's over. It's like, Oh, I'll never, right. I'll never hang out with that guy again. I'll never hear a joke or a story right. or anything right. like that. And, and we could use him right now. Like he was the funniest one among us. So yeah. He was the funniest one among us. I think everyone would admit that. Yeah, I'm talking about our, our, we have a group text called the Golden Lords, and there's a bunch of, like, comedians, and uh, Kevin was, you know, one of the, one of the best. I mean, just a right. truly brilliant, gifted joke writer and storyteller. Right. And, uh, yeah, it was like, when you lose someone like that, it's like, you're not just losing a brother, but you're losing, you're losing someone who has, who has just made your life better. So right. it's just, it, was, it was, yeah, it was tough. It was tough. Still tough. But, yeah, he, you, know. He, you know, he was so kind and lighthearted. And right. the times that I interacted with him, like, I was always amazed at how much fun he had at his own expense. Like, right. Joking about, <laughs> Very self-deprecating. Like, he, joking about bombing, then he would go right. on stage, <laughs> and then he would come back off, off stage and joke about bombing. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> he was the master. He, he, made, he made me love the art of the bomb. It's an art. I feel it's like you art. learn so much more in the bomb than you do in the crash. It's like, right. Okay. Now, now I, it's like, it's like, now I know what struggle is. And, I mean, that was, a, that was a genius of Kevin, man. Like he, he could turn something that's so uh, a comedian's worst fear. And he turns it into the, the funniest joke that you can, you can think of. It's like, that, that's a superpower right there. He had right. an ability to make anything funny. Uh, right. He's just one of the greats, man. He's truly one of the greats. How how did his death and like recognizing your own mortality, how did that like influence the direction you guys wanted to move in with the projects you work on? Did it did it change that at all in terms of like? Yeah, I mean it was. It, I mean there was a, a period right after twenty sixteen up until probably twenty twenty when it was just like a sort of a period of darkness. Like there was a struggle with addiction and drinking. There was, you know, just like professional issues and like Keith and I were sort of like going through our own struggles and then like, mm-hmm. and then, and then Kevin sort of dies. And as we're doing all this, we're going through the process of Judas. And so it's like, you're having to deal with this very sort of tragic subject material while you're watching uh, Fred's family process grief. And then you're like in the process of processing your own grief. And it's like, it's just sort of this sort of, Weird said you that sort of like you kind of lifting each other up. You're like I'm seeing how strong Fred Hampton's girlfriend, Mother Akua, and his son. I'm seeing how strong they are in their process of grief, and I'm like, I, it, it 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 challenged me to be even more, uh, you know, strong in my grief. So now when I'm approaching my approaching my art, I, I I try to take everything into consideration. Like I'm not either I'm not trying to be either too whimsical or I'm not trying to be too sad. I just want to the full range of emotions absolutely no i I think you i think you uh stated it perfectly i mean it's like uh yeah i mean you're gonna you're gonna feel things and but 
Yeah, you want to feel everything because I think it all influences the art. I think it all. I right. think it, all, it makes the it makes the art a lot richer. Right. Um, but ultimately, like it's, it's it's tragic and it's still trauma, and you still have to deal with it. But if you can channel it into something positive, then that's to me that's a good thing. Yeah, right. Like it's not. It can't be the sole source of your therapy, but right. it is a part of your therapy. Right. Being able to ex- express yourself in a way that touches on issues that impacted. I think it's somewhat therapeutic. I agree. Right. In terms of the stories you want to tell, Mm -hmm. stories you want to share. Right. So uh, on on that note, you you know, you're, I mean, I I don't want to shortchange the success you're currently enjoying with Judas and the Black Messiah because, you know, you just got nominated for Writers Guild Awards. We're in the the heat of award season. Yeah. Who knows, who knows what's going to happen with the Oscars. Right. Um, Knock on all the wood. Um, but, um, but then you've also got two other projects you're currently working on, right? Mm-hmm. Right. So, uh, right. yeah, we're working on Venue to Nerds with Seth MacFarlane and we're working on, uh, uh, this movie with, you know, uh, Lord and Miller from, uh, you know, Lord and Miller. Uh, so, you know, we've just been trying to stay busy and, and keep our minds and on, on, on the work because this is, it's a crazy time right now. Right. It's like so, so much death and especially we're just, we're just, we're still recovering from the Trump administration. Right. And uh, yeah, it's just, yeah, it's this, just a this very been, crazy this has been like a, this, is, this has been like a, I, I forget sometimes that Biden's in office. I'm like, <laughs> it's almost, it's almost too boring. Like, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. When, when Trump was in office, he's like, it was something every day. Every, like, every second, every, like, I don't even, I don't check Biden's Twitter. I don't, I, it's like, I don't even like, I'm like, oh, he's going to say something boring and it's not going to be as crazy as the Trump years, which is a good thing. I think we need stability in the office. And he's he's like he's like a grandpa, man. I mean, I'm sure he's probably doing some nefarious shit, too. But, you know, he's just not as bad as Trump at this point. Trump well, that's 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 what Biden promised, though. He promised to bring boring back. I think that's a, <laughs> bring, I think that's a good thing. Bring boring, bring, bring boring back better. Bring, bring boring back better. I like boring back better. America needs that shit, man. <laughs> Uh, and, you know, getting back to the kind of the first thing I brought up, you know, Bill O'Neill talking about at least he wasn't an armchair revolutionary. Do you feel like being a comedian or um, screenwriter is a is a better way of, of achieving revolution than, than being in the law or being in politics or? <laughs> I don't think so. No, <laughs> I don't think, no I'm not going to give myself that much credit. I, I think you have to, I think you, I think someone like Fred Hampton a leader who who was in the community on the ground uh organizing and, and that that's the more effective way of bringing about change yeah you got to organize around you need money you need leadership you need arms <laughs> you look need, I, uh, and don't get me wrong i think propaganda and art certainly plays a role but I, I i would not say that we play the most important role i think that we play us we play a role obviously you know uh propaganda matters but Ultimately, you need you need strong leadership. You need very strong leadership. And I don't know if stand-up comedians are. <laughs> we just tell jokes all the time. It's like, oh, you know, sometimes you got to get serious during revolution. <laughs> Can't just be jokes. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, you know. Well, Kenny and Keith, thank you so much for uh, not only writing a great movie uh, and co-producing a great movie, but uh, taking some time out of your schedule to to chat with me about it. I really appreciate of course, it. Of course, of course. Of course, of course. And also shout out to Will Burson and Shock King. They they wrote the screenplay and I just want to say shout out to all of the producers involved on the film because it's uh 
it, it took a it took a village to get it done. So, right, right. Awesome. Thank, Thank you so you, much. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Things first.